God, our Father, Lord, we, we praise You. We give You glory and honor, God, because You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And we thank You because You are worthy of thanksgiving. Lord, You are the one who has given us our life and our breath and everything that we have. You sustain our lives. And Lord, the number of our days is in your hand. And so we look to you and we praise you for your power. And we praise you for your amazing grace. And we praise you for your beauty and your awesome majesty. And we are just reminded this morning that, Lord, you are in heaven. You are the eternal rock. In you we can put our trust. And in you we can find rest for our souls. Even through our Lord Jesus, whom you sent to die for our sins. To pay the penalty for our wrongdoing. To pay the penalty in full to remove our guilt and Lord to count us worthy to know you and to be with you forever. We thank you for the wonderful plan of redemption that you have included us in and we just ask that you would strengthen our faith that you would encourage us by good hope And that, Lord, that you would use us just to manifest your glory. Lord, that our lives might be a witness that we have been with you. That, Lord, people would see the good character of Jesus in us. And, and Lord, not only that, but that we might learn to enjoy you and fellowship with you. And walk in the light of your countenance and in the light of day. Oh, Lord, help us to hate sin and darkness, wickedness and evil. And help us to love what is right and true and good and noble. Oh, Lord, help us to be your holy people set apart unto you. A people for your own possession, God. And Lord, I pray that you would continually remind us of who we are. And uh, we thank you for all that you are to us and all that you're doing in our lives because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen. Okay, so we're back in our study of First Thessalonians. And uh, <clears throat> we have gotten to chapter 4 and verse 3, which is where we left off last week. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up and read... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and following. just want to remind you that right at chapter 4, there's kind of a break in Paul's writing. And he kind of shifts and makes a transition uh, there in the letter. And uh, he begins his concluding remarks. And so with that, he's going to kind of give them some instruction that's really needful for them on the issue of uh, personal holiness, specifically in regard to, to two things. The first is 
sexual immorality. The second is their responsibility to work with their own hands and to live a peaceable, quiet life. And, uh, of course, uh, if you were here last week, I read some commentaries on um, a little bit of understanding of what sexual immorality was like in the church at Thessalonica and in the Greco-Roman world of that day and time. Uh, if you weren't here, you might want to go listen to the either the CD or you can listen to it on the Internet. And I uh, gave quite an extensive reading of the kind of thing that went on in their culture. Uh, sexual immorality was commonplace in the Greco-Roman world. It was something that was culturally acceptable. And... Uh, it was really something that was rather brazen and unashamed. In fact, many of the religions that these people worshipped in, some of the chief rituals that they were involved in were rituals of sexual immorality, whereby they would go to the temple of their god or goddess and they would engage in sexually immoral activity as a part of their religious practice. Not only was it a religious thing, but it was also something that was very commonplace in the practical daily living of the Greco-Roman people. They would, uh, the men would keep mistresses, they would keep concubines, and uh, uh, they would do this even when they were married. Married men would live in this kind of situation. Prostitution was something that was commonplace and culturally acceptable. There were what they call brothels, literally, on every street. It was a very common thing for people to engage in, in, uh, in prostitution. And so, if you will, this is something that was rampant in the culture. So when Paul addresses this, he, he really kind of puts his foot down and he gives them a commandment that is very clear and very um, strict. And it doesn't allow for any wiggle room, if you will. The commandment that he gives them is complete abstinence from any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, period. And uh, the, the words that Paul uses make that very clear. He uses the word porneia, which is uh, the the Greek word for um, any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. It is also a word that is used frequently in the New Testament for sexual sin in various kinds, various forms. It's not just fornication. <clears throat> of course, the English word that that we use fornication is is a word that's talking typically about premarital sex or, or extramarital sex. Um, but but uh, porneia covers every kind of sexual sin there is, period. It's better translated sexual immorality, or if you will, a transgression in the area of sexual activity. So Paul lays down this command for them, which is abstinence from any kind of that activity, period. And uh, so he makes it very clear. I'm going to read then from 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 
uh, 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, so with that, Paul basically kind of opens up this instruction by saying, this is the will of God. This is God's desire. This isn't just some instruction I'm laying down, but let me tell you, I'm putting this thing on God's back, is what he says. This is God's will, he says, your sanctification. Now, we've talked about sanctification quite a bit over the last few weeks. Typically, in the context of 1 Thessalonians, sanctification is the process by which we are being made practically holy or set apart unto God in ever-increasing manner. Sanctification is that thing where God is transforming our life to become more and more like Christ's life. He's conforming us after the image of Christ. He's conforming our character. He's conforming our thoughts. He's conforming our words. He's conforming our actions into the character of Christ. And this is a process that goes on from the day we get born again until the day we get glorified at the resurrection. And that process is ongoing. Uh, Nevertheless, the idea of sanctification is, in its very root form, is just being holy or set apart, which in, in this context is holy or set apart unto God, which carries overtones with it. For example, the overtone of being without sin or being pure, and so, if you will, sanctification, he says, as, as he was praying back in chapter 3, he called it blameless holiness, that uh, he may uh, establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God. That's the idea of sanctification, that if you were to dwell in sanctification, you would dwell in a blameless state. You would dwell in a state... Uh, apart from any kind of sin and set apart unto holy behavior unto God. So this goal always and ever remains before us, that we keep pressing on to this likeness of Christ where we are pure in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Amen? So he says this is the will of God. And so last week we kind of left off talking about different scriptures that actually say that. For example, 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And uh, we could ask this question about the way we live our Christian life. Is this one of the main goals of our Christian life? That we would cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do we see our life with that purpose in mind? Do we understand that God is in us and that this is His will? What? Our sanctification. 
Well, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. Cleansing ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Pursuing the purity of Christ in our life, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. That's God's will for our life. And, of course, he expresses it in so many ways. Uh, Titus 2.11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Amen? Well, if you live godly, if you live like God, what does that say about your behavior? Does God ever sin? No, he doesn't. If that's your goal, if, if the grace of God has appeared instructing us to live in a godly way, what is it that the Holy Spirit is instructing us to do? To live a life that's pure, to live a life that's without sin, to live a life that is here in this context righteous and sensible, denying ungodliness and worldly desires. Amen? Peter writes, and he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, don't do the nasty things you used to do when you were a sinner. Right? But now you're a Christian. So what do you do? Well, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. To, to be holy in everything you do, in all of your conduct, no matter what it might be. This is a constant theme, obviously. Listen, if we have been forgiven of our sins, and that by the death of the Lord Jesus, God forbid that we should walk in sin any longer. Amen? Are you with me? Are you grateful for what God has done in Christ? Moreover, do you love Christ for who he is and what he has done? And does not that love burn as a fire in your heart, a fire that makes your thoughts and your words and your deeds holy? Are you with me? Let it be that very thing. Let that fire of love and devotion in our heart be the thing that drives us on to be God's holy people. Amen? And as you read through the, test, the record of the Old Testament, is not God constantly and continually showing us when you act like this and you do this specific thing and you transgress my holiness, there's consequences and there is, uh, there is suffering and there is misery. But if you will walk in all of my ways and keep my commandments and fear me and love me and walk in all of my ways, then you will be blessed. And so he says again and again and again in the Old Testament, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Choose ye this day how you will behave. Choose ye this day the ancient path where the godly people walked. Are you with me? And so uh, that standard has never changed. We have turned away from our sin and our wickedness and repentance, and we have turned to follow Christ and walk after him, which means that we begin to do the things that he did and say the things that he said and think the things that he thinks. Amen? That gives our life great meaning and great purpose. But moreover, we ended right here last week saying that 
It is because of sin and impurity that the wrath of God is coming upon the world. Uh, if you think about the world in the large scheme of things, okay, this place is firewood. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? It's all fuel for the wrath of God. In fact, the only thing in this creation that's not fuel for the wrath of God is Christians. Why? Because the world is filled with violence. And the thought of men's hearts is only evil continually. That's why. That's why the wrath of God is coming. This is what Paul says. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 1.18 Or he says in Ephesians 5, that uh, know this with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Why is there wrath? Answer, because there is sin. Are you with me? And, of course, this is the thing that nobody wants to believe about God. We want to think God's just some big grandpappy in the sky patting everybody on the head. Because, you know, grandpappies don't burn anybody. You understand the severity of this? We're talking about the almighty God who is enraged to such a degree that he is going to destroy people forever. As I tell you that, you don't even want to hear that about God. The thought is repulsive to you. And it should be. It should cause you dread. It should cause you fear. And this is a good thing. This is what the Bible instructs us to do. To be afraid of God's judgment. To be afraid of His anger and His wrath against sin. So afraid! That you will go find refuge in the place he has provided. Are you with me? Hopefully you don't have to be motivated by fear. But if fear is what motivates you. And brings you to the cross. Where you repent and believe. Let it be. Amen. I'm trying to portray the idea. That sin is something that is an antinomy to God. It is not God's way. Not only is it not God's way, but God is the avenger of sin. For every single sin, there will be judgment. God will judge righteously. Every single sin that has ever been committed in the whole history of the record of mankind from the day man set foot on the earth until the day that we're all glorified in heaven and there's no more sin in the world. Every single sin God will judge. And it will get its proper consequence, which is death. 
And so either you're going to die for your sin or Jesus is going to be punished and die for your sin, but somebody is going to die for your sins, every one of them. Because God can't deny himself. He must be himself, who is holy, holy, holy. You with me? You understand those things. Those are very basic things about God and about his world. Amen? And those are things we need to walk in the understanding of. We can't be like the rest of the world and turn a blind eye to God. We must stop belittling God. And we must take him into account in everything we say, in everything we think, and in everything we do. Amen? So, if you will, Paul points out and he says to these Thessalonians, it's, this is the will of God, that you would be holy, that you would be blameless in holiness, that you would live in sanctification, that you would be set apart for God unto His purposes, that you would be His holy people, His people set apart, His people that don't live and walk in sin anymore. Amen? And so then he begins to address this huge, enormous problem that is in the culture that they live in, and he's trying to define for them in no uncertain terms what being a Christian in a sexually immoral society looks like. So he, he says it very clearly, that you abstain from sexual immorality, period. That was undoubtedly a very difficult thing. For many Christians. Now, Paul wants to make it really clear that sexual immorality is a grievous sin. I'm on page 40, about halfway down. That is to be abstained from. This is because the pagan culture of Greco of the Greco-Roman world was one that was steeped in sexual immorality. As it was, not only the featured practice in many of the hundreds of pagan religions and worship of false gods there, but also a part of everyday life. Many Greco-Roman men would have not only wives, but also mistresses and concubines as well. A quote from the 3rd century B.C. Greek, Demosthenes, states, Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our households. Note well the hardened heart towards sin and the calloused attitude that accompanied such blatant and brazen sinful behavior that permeated the culture in Thessalonica. Here's this thing that kind of just shocks me about pagan peoples, people that are just so far from God. They're just completely without God in the world is how brazen they are with sin. That through generations of time and through the continual practice of sin, they are so callous toward God that they just do the most brazen things with absolutely no fear of God in their hearts whatsoever. It's shocking. I even see it in our culture today. Uh, you know, I, I think of being out on a construction job site and listening to the mouth of construction workers. I don't mean to pick them out. I mean, good night. It's in every fabric of our culture. But just kind of an image I have of how, how brazen men are with the things they will say, not realizing all the while they're right in the presence of God. Who is giving them their next breath? 
And that's how we are as sinners. Our hearts are calloused toward sin. Our hearts are calloused toward God. And we, we, we shake our, our fist in his face every time we sin against him. And we say, who are you, God, to tell me what I ought to do? Right? And then we live a whole life of arrogance. Watch me, God. Right? Worse yet, we don't even acknowledge him or that he even exists. <laughs> if I were God, I would be furious. Right? Fortunately, for me and everybody else, I'm not God. Because, <laughs> amen, it's true. But let me tell you, God is furious. A million times more furious than I would ever be. And God's anger is righteous. It is altogether right, and it is altogether good. And let me tell you, the fury of his wrath is infinitely indescribable in the horror of it. So uh, we need to think rightly about God. Are you with me? <laughs> and so Paul is saying, hey, you, you holy people of God, let me tell you how you ought to behave, right? So uh, he points out this sin of sexual immorality, and he gives them a very direct imperative that they must abstain from it. So I was pointing out that this ancient culture in, in Thessalonica was not very much unlike the current culture in America, which is even now in a moral freefall, becoming more and more like this ancient culture in its tolerance of sexual immorality. Despite the benefit of Christian morality that once governed our culture's laws and practices, the public display and wanton promiscuity of our culture deepens and plunges further and further almost exponentially as the days go on. But the standard of God for his holy people has not changed, nor will it ever. And so the commandment would be to us American Christians that you abstain from sexual immorality. Amen? His will is for our sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. This, again, was no foreign idea to Christians throughout the New Testament. Now, the idea about abstaining from sexual immorality is not a foreign teaching that's just located in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's something that was continually taught. Uh, of course, it, it's an Old Testament idea where at, whereby God makes it very clear in his law that sexual morality is to be judged in the culture, right? But moreover, it was the teaching of our Lord Jesus himself as well as the apostles. For example, in Ephesians 5, 3 through 8, this is what Paul said there. But do not let immorality or in any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance of the, in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And so here, Paul makes it very clear. 
that immorality and impurity and covetousness is not even to be named. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 and following, he writes this. He says, flee immorality. Of course, there he's writing into the Corinthians. You understand all these churches? Let me just give you this background. Ephesus was very much like Thessalonica. Corinth was very much like Thessalonica and Ephesus, where there are hundreds of different kinds of pagan religions and temples. And they go to these temples and they engage in sexual immorality as a part of their religious practice. And when Paul is writing this to these people, he's telling them, look, you have to turn away from this filthy, wicked world that you live in. You can't live like the people in your world any longer. That's what he's saying to them. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Or he writes to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 and following, therefore Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Okay, I think about this verse of scripture in Colossians. It says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. You know, it speaks to me a lot about uh, American Christians justifying the kinds of entertainment that they engage in. Because we, we typically we look at this and we say, well, that means I'm not supposed to commit adultery. I'm not supposed to go out and have the physical act of, of sex outside of marriage. I'm not supposed to have premarital sex. Or, or um, uh, I, I'm not supposed to do all kinds of manner of sexual activity that's improper before God, right? But the thought of it, well, that's not so bad. Right? I mean, what's wrong with a little soap opera in the middle of the day where all the women are violating their marriage covenants and, and we're glorifying sin in every possible way? And, and, and uh, uh, you know, hey, it's okay. I can just kind of be a peeping Tom and kind of look in on others' shame and disgrace. But that's really not a sin for me. So I say that for you to seriously consider the thought of it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But when, when, when Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body, what is he talking about? Is he only talking about your sex organs when he says, <laughs> dead to immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire? Well, let me tell you, passion is something that burns in the heart. Evil desire is something that lives in the mind. Are you with me? Paul says, count those members as dead to passion and to evil desire. You know, and I, I think we have lots of neat ways of justifying it. But I have to tell you, 
when I see in movies or TV or whatever, sin being glorified, no matter how emotionally pleasing it may be, family, for you to be entertained by that is a sin against God. Because you willingly approve of something, not only do you approve of it, you revel in it when you're entertained by it. Are you with me? Look, I'm not trying to heap a heavy load on your back. I'm trying to protect you from sin. And I want you to think about the things that you engage in and entertain yourself in. Okay? I think of, of you know, wonderful, dramatized stories, uh, romances and things that to us seem so right and they, they feel so good when we see them and we're entertained by them. But let me tell you, if they violate God's standards of morality... That's simply a glorification of sin. And if that thing is not treated in the drama as the evil that it is, and we approve of it, what have we done? (laughs) Are you with me? So I'll talk some more about that. I think it opens up a whole can of worms and questions. Okay? But I think they're questions we need to ask, especially in the media-driven culture that we live in. Okay? So, going on, Ephesians 4, 17 through 20, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. Look, don't live like the Gentiles live any longer. How? In the futility of their mind. Christians aren't to live thinking futile things, thinking vain thoughts, thinking thoughts that have no profit whatsoever, much less filthy thoughts. Amen? Can't just read right by that. We've got to stop and hear what God has said. Listen, don't live like the Gentiles live any longer in the futility of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Does that not define the people that are putting together the kind of entertainment that is in the world around us? And isn't Paul saying, don't think like them. Don't be darkened in your understanding with them. God forbid that you should be entertained by the things that entertain them. He goes on. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They just have a continual lust for more and more. They just keep pushing the envelope of what's acceptable in the culture. Of course, only as it serves them. I was with the family last night. My son-in-law, Nolan, was there. And he says, you know what's, what's nuts? He says, this world is nuts. <laughs> and uh, he was commenting on the idea of Tiger Woods um, and how this man went out and was womanizing and committing adultery. And because of that, now, they have drugged the man's name through the mud publicly. Right? And my son-in-law, Nolan, has enough wisdom to say, you know what? Time out. Here's all these people 
who are glorifying sin and every account, pushing the limits of what's acceptable in the culture and in the broadcast media. But then when somebody finally does what they encourage everybody to do, then they go and beat the poor guy half to death and drag him through the dirt. You with me? It's just nuts. They're just so, they're just so, they're so unsensible. It's just a bunch of, I'm sorry, I'm going to go run off and say a bunch of things I shouldn't say. <laughs> but, but the idea is, are, are you with me? Uh, the, the public culture is so vile and so wicked that it, it doesn't even have a sense of, of right thinking, period. Right? And, and the very thing they would encourage us to do, when we finally do it, then they will uh, 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 ravage us for it. Right? Not, not that we shouldn't point out somebody's wrongdoing. Uh, I, I wonder if we'd do that publicly in a lot of circumstances. But the point is, is that, look, we shouldn't, we shouldn't approve of evil. Right? But at the same time, we shouldn't encourage it. Amen? Are you with me? Joe, what were you going to say there, buddy? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's how the world lives. They bite and they devour one another. So it is not with you. That's not proper among Christians. Right? And God forbid, had we had one among us who did such an evil thing, that we would seek to cover over and heal that person from their sin and help them in a way that delivers them from the bondage of their sin. Amen? And offers healing and forgiveness. Terry? interesting to note that they're railing on these men uh, over the last few months that have been unfaithful and immoral that they don't have happened to point out the fact that they had to have a, a woman that would be a, agreeable to do that along with mm-hmm. Right, yeah, so the man, the, the media star or whoever, right, gets uh, de- derailed and, and uh, the women are just uh, helpless uh, subjects, right? <laughs> <clears throat> God help them. He, he writes in the word, Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's obvious, right? I mean, people in the world don't want to hear about God. They don't love Christ, right? They don't love. They don't even love the thought of what Christ has to do in order to redeem us. So they want to write that out of existence, right? If God doesn't exist, look, there's no such thing as sin. Everybody can do what's right in his own eyes. Yes? But he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, uh, of course, uh, yeah, it's probably the very ones who are throwing the stones who are the ones who are involved in that own immoral activity themselves, right? They're certainly the ones 
the broadcast networks are the ones who are putting it forth. Are they not? Are you with me? They are a den of devils. You with me? Okay. All right. Okay. Sorry. It's just that, you know, these people are sinners, and that's what they do. And it just bears in mind what you are instructing through God's word to us, is that God is directing us to not behave like the world. We are to abstain. And, you know, the sin among Christians like this is mm-hmm. very, very grievous. Absolutely. I mean, it's grievous when the world does it, but they're sinners. Mm-hmm. And we've been given a command from God Mm-hmm. It's very true. I have a. I think of a. Uh, I think of a, a a a word picture that describes what you just said. When sinners sin, they just do what's natural to them. When Christians sin, it's like sewage on the white marble floor of heaven. Because it's not proper for God's holy people. We are the temple in which God's spirit dwells. Shall we now defile that temple? And let us not think for one minute that we can define what defiling that temple is. God has defined it very clearly. We shouldn't try to be in some way trying to justify our sin, especially the sin of sexual immorality, which is a sin against more than just God. And it's a sin against more than just you and God. It's a sin against three different people, if not more. <laughs> right? Depending on who all is involved in the situation. It is a grievous, grievous matter, sexual immorality among Christians. And we need to see it as such. Okay, see, then, that this, that it is very clear that Christians abstain from sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia and means fornication, harlotry, including adultery and incest. The English word fornication means any kind of sex outside of marriage, which is explained as voluntary sexual intercourse between two unmarried persons. Of course, God does honor sex within the bonds of marriage and in fact considers it an undefiled and holy thing. Hebrews 13.4 Paul's contrast of sexual immorality with sanctification and honor, coupled with his command to abstain, make it very clear that sexual intercourse outside of marriage is sinful and entirely inappropriate for Christians. He therefore states that each of you, Christians, has a responsibility to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Christians do not commit the most intimate of relations with just any person, but only those to whom they have committed their life in a monogamous marriage. Unlike the Greco-Roman culture around them, in which they all have participated, they are no longer to have any sex outside of marriage, nor are their emotions and actions to be driven out of control. They are to be self-controlled when it comes to sexual activity, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. The uncontrolled desire for sexual gratification, which is typical for unregenerate people, was not to be true for the Thessalonians or any other Christian. For the Gentiles of that culture live in lustful passion. Here, 
Lustful is with intense desire, and passion is overwhelming or overpowering desire. Coupled together, these take on the clear idea of consuming desire for sexual gratification, which reaches uncontrollable levels. This is how people live who do not know God, for they are a God unto themselves and live for whatever drives their desires, regardless of what God says. Not so for the Christian who has surrendered their will to Christ, who commands them to live in purity and in repentance from sexual sin, which is impure in the sight of God and improper for his holy people. Amen? Is there another amen out there? He goes on, and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you and solemnly warned you. You know, something I wanted to point out. Do you remember when Paul was having a tremendous struggle with the Judaizers in the churches of Galatia and in in, uh, the Greco-Roman world? And uh, he actually came down to meet with the apostles in Jerusalem over the matter. Because the Judaizers were saying that, uh, you know, the Christians had to keep the ceremonial law, they had to keep the practice of circumcision, and various other kinds of, of, uh, of heresy they were trying to put off on the church, and Paul kept refuting them. Well, so he went down to the Jerusalem church to get a ruling from the, the uh, Jewish apostles there. And you might remember that when they were all said and done, they wrote a letter back to the churches. Do you recall that? And in it, they have three directives. Does anybody remember what those are? Acts chapter 15, verse 29. Okay, one was don't eat blood. What was the other one? Yeah, and? You remember the other one? Neither do I. (laughs) Um, Idols. Idols. Meat sacrifice to idols, that's what it was. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat blood, and don't be involved in sexual immorality. They said, beyond this, we don't want to put any other yoke on your back. Okay? Now, you go down there to those Jews who got a list of laws a mile long on things that they practice as a matter of being a Jew. Are you with me? And they say, well, you're Gentiles. You haven't been raised like us. You don't live with us. However, you're included in the grace of God. That's clear. He gives you his Holy Spirit. Right? So what ought you to do? Well, here's a short list. Three things. Guess what's in there? Sexual immorality. They recognize that as a very crystal clear thing that Christians are to abstain from. And they likened it, right? They likened it unto idolatry. Sexual immorality is again and again and again likened unto idolatry in the New Testament. Interesting thing I just wanted to point out about that ruling in Acts 15. But he goes on, he says, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Here Paul makes it clear that fornication, even among fellow Christians, is improper. He clearly states that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, so that we understand that when we selfishly use another Christian and take for our own personal pleasure what does not rightfully belong to us, we transgress and defraud them. You see what Paul's saying? 
He's saying when you commit sexual immorality, you transgress, which means you did what? You sinned against God. And what did you do? You defrauded your brother. Okay? Of course, this is in the context of committing sexual immorality with another Christian. There's an argument about this, by the way, among all the commentators. But uh, uh, that is what he means by brother. Okay? But nevertheless, I take the view that he, he means another Christian. Uh, but nevertheless, the idea is sexual immorality is defrauding another human being. Are you with me? It is a defrauding of another person. You cannot commit sexual immorality and only be hurting yourself because someone else is always involved. And when they're involved, they're involved in a sinful activity. Are you with me? It brings hurt. It brings pain. It brings consequences. It brings death. Amen? Uh, Whenever believers seek to satisfy their physical desires and gain sexual pleasure at the expense of another believer, they have violated this command, sinning against God, their own body, and their fellow believer. This makes the compound nature of this sin very severe indeed. And because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, they must understand that this behavior is certainly a violation of God's will. Another way to state this is that it is entirely inappropriate for Christians to have sex outside of marriage, for we know that this is the kind of behavior for which the wrath of God is coming upon the heathen world, and we therefore know that God does not approve of such behavior. Sexual immorality by professing Christians is usually evidence that they are not truly born again and therefore not true believers but mere professors. Those who live in the practice of continual sin show by this evidence that they do not know God. Now, I don't want you to think I'm being unexceptionally uh, harsh, but I want you to read it for yourself in the Word of God. My point is, if somebody is living in an ongoing, continual, sexually immoral relationship. They are giving evidence that they do not know God and that the Holy Spirit doesn't live in them. Okay, I'm not talking about the kind of sexual sin that believers fall into. Uh, It happens uh, maybe a single time or a single few times, and then there is a tremendous grieving and brokenness over sin and the consequent destruction of all the relationships around it um, that does happen to Christians maybe you've seen it but what is marked by the situation when it's over is brokenness and repentance are you with me that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about the kind of brazen activity that goes on where they're living in a continual relationship uh, of, of sex outside of marriage it gives evidence that they are not born again. This is what John says, 1 John 3, 6 and following. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, the word sins here, if you look in this context, the idea is the ongoing continual practice of sin. Okay, He's going to make that clear as he goes on. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. 
The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he is born of God. The idea is he cannot go on sinning because the Spirit of God lives in him and his conscience is under heavy conviction. That's ultimately going to drive the true believer to brokenness and repentance. Are you with me? Let me read that again. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he has been born of God. How about this? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. In other words, the fruit of your life shows the reality of your heart, doesn't it? This is not to say that true Christians never sin or commit sexual immorality. Surely they do. It is to say that if they do, God will certainly deal with their sin. God will see to it that there be serious consequences for believers who engage in sexual immorality. Sin always has destructive consequences for those who choose it, as God is the avenger of all these things. And this is something the apostle has previously warned the Thessalonians about, stating, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. You know, here's what Paul said to him when he was there. He said, you Thessalonian believers, you must abstain from sexual immorality. And by the way, if you don't, let me tell you, God is the avenger of these things. And he warned them about that. That's what this context of these verses is saying. And don't think for one minute that you can commit sexual immorality without severe consequences. God will see to it that your sin gets dealt with. You see, the problem, if, if you commit a sin, let's say that's in your heart, or you commit a sin that's singular, that you've done somehow, right? That's one thing. But when you commit a sexually immoral sin, you defraud another human being. And you are not just sinning against God. You're sinning against yourself, and you're sinning against another human. And it is a very severe kind of a sin. We need to understand that. And God judges sin. He deals with it. There's consequences for it. Maybe you're close enough to a situation where you've seen the kind of destruction that it creates. It's huge. Okay? So why such extended teaching about this? One reason and one reason only. Okay? Today's a new day. You're God's holy people. Go out and do the right thing. And if you find yourself... In temptation, here's what you do. You cry out to God. And you ask God for strength to stand against that sin. That's what you do. You flee. You flee. Don't even put yourself in a situation whereby you can be tempted in this way. Because I promise you, you don't have the strength to stand. And neither do I. Are you with me? So, God help us. God help us to be his holy people. Why? For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He didn't call you to continue to live in sexual immorality, did he? No, he didn't. He called you to live a pure life, a holy life, a life that's set apart unto him. A life that doesn't defile his temple. 
Amen? Yeah. I know that what we talked about as far as In this context, it is. So is that covering, is that covering pornography too? I mean, obviously, that's where we get the word. No, it's not. No. But that's covered in the sin of impurity sure. or passion or evil desire. Okay. Sure. No, porneia is the actual physically committing a sexual sin. Because okay. here, I was just thinking about that in the, in the sense of... <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not giving license to pornography in any way, shape, or form. It is also a very hideous and grievous sin. Yes, by all means. But porneia does not mean. Porneia is the physical act of committing sexual sin. Okay. However, there's plenty of biblical words that describe the sin of pornography, okay, and what it is. And I think that uh, pornography also is something beyond just what we might think of, for example, a man looking at some kind of uh, sexually explicit pictures, okay? Pornography is something far greater than that, and it's something that American women indulge in all the time, too. Um, and so I probably ought to maybe try to define that a little bit more, and obviously I didn't get as far as I thought I would. <laughs> so we'll be talking some more about that. Okay, well, that, that clarifies a lot. I mean, this isn't a true text against pornography. There's plenty of others. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, of course, we all know that Jesus says that if you look on a woman with lustful thoughts, you've committed adultery in your heart. What the Lord is doing is he's describing the category of sexual immoral sin that that commandment covers. You understand the commandments are, the Ten Commandments are categories of sin. And the Lord is making it very clear that, that sexual sin, sexually impure sins, are not just the physical act, but they go beyond that. But later on in the New Testament, even Jesus himself, but the apostles begin to define that with all other kinds of words, like I said, impurity, passion, evil desire. There's others. Debauchery is another one. Uh, there, there's others. There's other words that talk about that. Por- pornography is debauchery. Por- pornography is impurity. <laughs> pornography is evil desires. All, it's all kinds of things. It, it's not just a singular sin. It's actually several. Yeah. Right. It's... It falls under the category. It falls under the category of sexual sin, which the Lord identifies as adultery, pulling it out of the commandments. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, He's going through the commandments, right? I'm not going to go on. I'm going to stop right there. Does anybody have any? Oh, I'm sorry. We need to pray. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your holy word. And uh, God, we thank you for your holy standard. Uh, oh Lord, surely we are all guilty of sexual sin. If, if we haven't committed the physical act, surely, God, we have committed the act in our hearts and in our minds. And we're all guilty. 
And uh, Lord, we realize that Jesus died even for these sins and that you offer complete forgiveness for these sins. And Lord, many of us uh, may have even been hurt by these sins. And, and God, we need to be willing to forgive others who are repentant and completely restore them, even as you completely restore us in our sin, God. And so, Lord, I pray for the hurt and the pain, even, that has come from such a thing. Father, that you would heal it completely, that you would grant the freedom of forgiveness. That, Father, you would also forgive each and every one of us, not only for these sins, but, God, for the long list of sins that we have committed. We thank you that you do forgive us by your grace. And we thank you that Jesus was punished for our sins and that he bore your wrath in his body on the tree in our place. And I pray, God, that we would be real in our hearts with you about our sin. And that, Father, we would look to the cross to find cleansing, to find healing, to find forgiveness. And, Lord, to see our guilt get washed away. And I pray that, God, we would see today as a new day. Today as a new opportunity to glorify you with our thoughts, words, and deeds. And I pray that you would strengthen us in our faith. That, Lord, we would be holy in all of our behavior. And that we would walk and please you in every respect. And that our lives would be a reflection of your holiness and your purity. Now, Lord, you know how each one of us struggles. And I, and I know that your word says you're our helper, God. That you're our refuge and that, that you are a very present help in time of trouble. God, may we run to you when we find ourselves tempted to sin. May we look to you for forgiveness when we have committed it. And Father, we just thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.